may be seated. Will you pray with me? Dear Father, I pray that this morning you would speak your word through my words. And as our Lord Jesus prayed that we might be one, even as you and he are one. Lord, would you make that true for us as we hear of this great command and this challenging command that Jesus gives to us this morning to love one another. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In our scripture readings this morning, there's a lot about the glory of God. The great multitude in Revelation 19 cries out in verse 1, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And again in verse 6, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. In Acts 13, it says that when the Gentiles heard that the gospel had come to them as well as to the Jews, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And in Psalm 145, the psalmist speaks of the mighty acts of the Lord, saying, On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. And this theme of the glory of God, of course, is central throughout all of Scripture. And when we come to our gospel reading, this is no different. That this passage also has something to say about the glory of Christ. And interestingly, it connects the glory of Christ with love. Jesus speaks of the glorification of the Son of Man and of God, and it seems that this leads him naturally into this commandment for Christians to love one another. This might seem like a strange mixture, glory and love, if we think about these terms in worldly terms. Because the way the world defines glory, it is inherently self-seeking and has nothing to do with love. But the way that Jesus talks about these two things, about glory and love, they are inherently related. And this morning, I want to lean into that relationship between the glory of God and love and I want to do this by looking at three aspects of this text. The glorification of Christ, the command of Christ, and the result of fulfilling that command. And through this, I want to encourage you and challenge you, brothers and sisters, to love one another, even when it is difficult, and to do so for the glory of Christ and to do so by looking to Christ's example. So first, the glorification of Christ. Jesus says in this passage, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. In these verses, Christ's glory points to the love of God in two ways. The first of those ways is it points to the love of the Trinity. And second, it points to Christ's love for us. 
Have you noticed that when Jesus talks about glory, in the Gospel of John especially, he talks a lot about the glorification of the Son of Man, but he does not ever say that he glorifies himself. He always speaks of how the Father must glorify the Son and how the Father is glorified in the Son and also how the Holy Spirit's mission when he comes will be to glorify Christ. In John 8, verse 50, Jesus says, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. And a few verses later, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And in John 14, verse 13, he says to his disciples, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And then a couple chapters later, John 16, verse 14, he says, The Holy Spirit will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And in our passage, we see this theme of the Father glorifying the Son and the Father being glorified in the Son. So the glorification of Christ actually points to the love that is inherent in the Trinity. You can think of it this way, just as the chief end of mankind is to glorify God, so God's chief end is actually to glorify himself. And that may sound striking to us. It may sound like a selfish and egotistical way of describing God. But in fact, it's not at all. In fact, it points to his selflessness within the three persons of the Trinity, For the Father is seeking the Son's glory. The Son is seeking the Father's glory. And the Holy Spirit, his vocation is to make Christ known. And that love of the Trinity overflows into the love especially that is shown to us in the cross of Christ. And this leads us to see that the glory of Christ also points to Christ's love for us. If you'll notice in the context of John 13... This is at the Last Supper, and Jesus has just washed his disciples' feet, and he has just testified that one of his disciples, one of his close friends, is going to betray him. And he intimates that that will be Judas. And this passage begins, it says, when he had gone out, it's referring to Judas going out to betray Jesus. This comes just as Jesus sees Judas going out to betray him, and he knows that they are heading to Gethsemane. And it's in this context that he says, now is the Son of Man glorified. Now certainly, Christ's glory is evident in all of his redemptive work, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, and in his seating at the right hand of God to ever live and intercede for us. But the Bible especially talks about the glory of Christ in relation to his death. Think about John chapter 20 at the resurrection when Jesus first appears to his disciples. And he shows them the marks, the scars in his hands and in his feet and in his side. 
those scars from Jesus' crucifixion are still there in his resurrected body. How amazing is that? And we heard just last week from Eric that the elders and the great multitude in Revelation chapters 5 and 7, the one to whom they are bowing down and worshiping is referred to as the lamb that was slain. This is a conquering lamb to be sure, but he is referred to the lamb that is slain, that has been slain. And so we see in this that Christ's death is his glory. There's something glorious about Christ's death. John Calvin says it in this way. He says, Whatever ignominy appears in the cross, which could bewilder believers, Christ testifies that the same cross is glorious to him. In the cross of Christ, as in a splendid theater, the incomparable goodness of God is set before the whole world. Why is Christ's suffering and death glorious? It's because by his death, he has purchased your souls if you trust in him. It's because by his death, he has made known the love of the Father for the world. Think of John 3.16. God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And it's because by his death, he has displayed the ultimate paradigm of love. As John writes in his first epistle, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And so we see that the overflow of this love of the Trinity results in the love displayed in the death of Christ. And this leads directly into the second point, which is the command of Christ that he gives to each one of us. Love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And this is a difficult command. That's what I want you to see this morning. This is a difficult command, and it's also an essential command for the Christian life. In this passage, Jesus knows that he is about to go to Gethsemane, and to be delivered over to be crucified, and that he will be raised again. But he knows that he's going to the Father, and that he will not be with his disciples in body. So just like a business owner who's going away may leave instructions to make sure that his business is run properly, so Jesus is leaving these instructions for his disciples. And this is the instruction that he gives them. Love one another. Now, he calls this a new commandment. What's new about it? Well, certainly the command to love one another is not new. This is prevalent all across the Old and New Testament. We read in Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus himself quotes this as the second great commandment. So what is new about this commandment? Well, it's that Jesus gives himself as the paradigm of love to imitate. He says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. This is why this is not an easy command, to love like Jesus. 
Now, imitating Christ in his love involves many things. And I encourage you as you read through the Gospels to be looking not only for what Christ has done for us, but also for the example he has left us. But I want to lean into two aspects of that this morning that come from the context of our passage. And that is that we are to imitate Christ's selfless service and his suffering sacrifice. You'll notice that this command is placed at a strategic point. It comes immediately after he's just washed his disciples' feet, and it comes immediately before his crucifixion. We remember that at the Last Supper, Jesus, to the surprise of his disciples, is serving them, washing their feet. And he says at the end of this, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you were right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. So Jesus loves his disciples by his service. He says, I came not to be served, but to serve. And as Jesus has commanded you to love each other, just as he has loved you, this means that you also must love one another in selfless service. You must put your brothers and sisters before yourself. You must be willing to do tasks that you would not otherwise be willing to do. You must not look down on other Christians because they are inferior to yourself in knowledge or strength or wisdom or occupation or anything else. But you must have the same mind in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient unto the point of death, even the death of a cross. And this leads into the second point, that we are to imitate Christ in his suffering sacrifice. Now, of course, this does not mean that we, are, that we can do what Christ did on the cross. Only Christ can atone for sins. But we read in John 15, verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So Jesus does call us to imitate him in his suffering sacrifice for his friends. And we need to recognize that loving one another is not going to be easy, and it's going to hurt sometimes. Have you ever been hurt deeply by a fellow Christian? Has a brother or sister in Christ ever sinned against you? Well, if you've been in the church for any length of time, the answer certainly has to be yes. Because the church is filled with saints who still have a vestige of that old sinful nature in us. So it's inevitable that we're going to sin against each other. 
brothers and sisters don't always get along. <laughs> Just ask any brother or sister or parent, and they can attest to that. <laughs> and often the deepest hurt comes from those closest to us. It would be easier, probably, to bear the hurt of a non-Christian sinning against you. Because at least you're not expecting that Christian love. But when it's a brother or sister in Christ, that's when it really hurts. And that's when we need to look to, ex- to Christ for his example. My fiance Katie, and I are learning that as much as we love one another, we actually, surprise, still sin against one another. Because <laughs> the old self is not fully gone. And it makes us see our need for Christ, for his forgiveness, and for his example. Because Jesus was not ignorant of all this when he gave this command. He wasn't just telling his disciples to have good feelings about each other. Jesus knows better than anyone in the history of the world what it is like to suffer because of the sins of his brothers and sisters. And he suffered not only the horrible physical pain of the cross, but also the full weight of the wrath of God upon him because of the sins of you and me. But he thought that we were worth it. So this ought to to encourage us. When we look to Christ and see what he has done for us, that we also are to love each other in the same way. Even when there is hurt and sin. Now this, of course, does not mean that you should stay in an abusive relationship or that you should seek out these dangers to place yourself in. But what it does mean is that you should not expect it to be easy always to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. That it will involve suffering, as Christ himself knows. But this leads us to the result of fulfilling this command, and this is the glorious thing. Jesus says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Obeying this command to love as Christ has loved us is for the glory of Christ. Obeying this command glorifies Jesus and makes him known. Just as the glorification of Christ points to Christ's love for us, so our love for each other glorifies Christ. And notice in this what Jesus does not say. He does not say, they will know you by your doctrine. As important as doctrine is, he doesn't say that. He says, they will know you by your love. If you hold in your mind perfectly to every doctrine of Scripture, if you have the right interpretation of every passage of Scripture, but are not showing the love of Christ to your brothers and sisters, Jesus is saying that you are not recognizable as his disciple. Thomas Akempis writes in 
his famous book, The Imitation of Christ, uh, written in 1418. He says, in the same vein, of what use is it to discourse learnedly on the Trinity if you lack humility and therefore displease the Trinity? Lofty words do not make a person just or holy, but a good life makes one dear to God. I would far rather feel contrition than be able to define it. If you knew the whole Bible by heart and all the teachings of the philosophers, how would this help you without the grace and love of God? So I want to encourage you not to think of Christianity merely as a religion of the mind, but also of the heart. And Jesus places the heart right at the center here, that you are to love one another. So if you've been hurt by a fellow believer, whether by a sharp word or an inconsiderate action, and you're looking for a reason to persist in trying to love your brother or sister, even when it seems like they're not responding in kind, we have the greatest reason right here to glorify Christ. It is in this that we are known as Christ's disciples, that we love one another. And this will involve suffering in this life. But we can also look forward to the consummation when our love for one another will not always involve suffering, but it will end in the glorified and purified church. And we can look forward to this when we will be able to say with that great multitude in Revelation 19, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, the church, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. So let us long for that day, even as we love one another now for the glory of Christ. In the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen.